Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're getting jiggy with Men in Black and I'm joined for this very special Men in Black episode by Rob DiCristino. Hey Rob. Have you ever flashy thing me, Patrick? I Patrick, flash- I'm, not, I'm not playing with you, Patrick. Have you ever flashy thing me? I flashy thing you after every podcast. F this movie after dark. That's right. <laughs> right away. I feel like this is the second week in a row we've had an after dark. <laughs> Patrick and I will be flashy thinking each other for the next 90 minutes. Um, how's everything going, Rob? Oh, it's quarantine. Yay. Yay. <laughs> no, it's going fine. I hope everything is going well out there for everybody. And uh, enjoy back to school season because it's going to be a frantic one. It's amazing how long this has, like, I can measure how long the quarantine has been going on by how long I've been doing, like, Skype shows, including with people that I would normally record in person with. You and I have always basically had to Skype except for this movie fest shows, but, like, Adam Risky or JB would typically come to the house and we would record. But, yeah, going all the way back to, like, March, I think we've been uh, doing these Skype shows and I always think like, all right, well, eventually we'll get back to doing in person. I thought, you know, maybe by scary movie month, but no, that's not going to happen. And it, you know, feels very much that we were just talking off mic about how it just really doesn't feel like people are sticking with it. It feels like a lot of people are just getting bored of the masks. Oh, for sure. And it's just like, that's only going to make it worse. So it's never going to end if that's how we are. (laughs) So, so that's exciting. Well, uh, we're stuck in quarantine. We're watching a lot of movies. Have you seen anything good lately? Speaking of uh, things ending or not ending, um, have you seen the new Charlie Kaufman film? I'm thinking of ending things. I have. What do you think? <laughs> mm, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. It's very. I'm going to need a few more watches. Obviously, um, it's very Charlie Kaufman. Um, very typical Charlie Kaufman themes delivered in a very typical Charlie Kaufman way. Um, it, I, um, what, what, I miss, what are the themes? <laughs> uh, loneliness, okay. uh, relationships being terrible, um, relationships being weird, traumatic cycles of how we basically just reflect ourselves and our own projections in a relationship. And also, um, pigs, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. That's a big uh, one. Pigs, pigs? yeah. Um, I, no, I, I'm going to need more time with it, obviously. And it is. I was. Adam was asking me how it was, and it, it is uh, tedious. <laughs> um, I miss Jesse Buckley uh, in um, what was she in last year? That was getting a lot of Wild Rose. I think it was called. I think that's what it's called. It's. Yeah. Uh, she's very good in it. Is that is that a good one? Because I think that was like the one movie that last year, you know, a lot of like critic people were talking about, and I, I just ended up missing it because I think that was a neon movie, and I had a screener for it, and I just never watched it. It's um, good. But... It's a little like formulaic in terms of the beats of like I want to be a singer, um, but she's okay. amazing and she's a great singer, and it, it's worth it just for her performance. Okay, because I watched her in this, and I was kind of like, oh, she's maybe a movie star, you know? Like there's yeah. something in that um so she got me through a lot of it jesse plemons is an is a guy i uh appreciate and i'm also just unsettled by generally um (laughs) 
you know, I, I was uh, I was talking to Adam because he, he brought up the whole um, Philip Zimmer Hoffman thing in The Master. And I was like, that's right. He reminds me of him. And um, I was also I, I wrote down a note that Jesse Plemons is to me kind of like if Matt Damon looked like a regular person. Like he has a lot of performance ticks that Matt Damon has to me. And that might be me being weird. But so, in this movie, especially when he's playing like a peculiar person, like all of his deliveries have a, a, a peculiar cadence. And you can tell he's really putting that on. Um there is just a level of unsettling feeling that comes off of him for me, which works for the movie, obviously. Um, Your description think, of him is much nicer than mine, which is uh, if Matt Damon was stung by bees. <laughs> <laughs> and I like him. He's a good actor. To me, he's and, always like, oh, he's the kid from Observe and Report, you know? Uh, yeah, too, yeah. And you got to give a to something like Game Night for capitalizing exactly. on his his oddness. Yeah, it's no disrespect to Jesse Plemons at all because he he is brilliant in a lot of things I've seen yeah. him. But yeah, I was I always tried to figure out what it was about him, just aside from his general feel, that always offset me a little bit. But um, yeah, I I I'm thinking of ending things is one of those movies where I watch it and I go, yep, like that's exactly like that really long book I had to read in college, and it's totally artful and to totally I you know all the references and all the literary allusions and. All those things, I get it. It's a very dense text, but um, to borrow a joke from Community, come on, Charlie Kaufman, I work in the morning. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I found myself, and maybe this is quarantine brain talking, uh, losing patience with it. Yes, yes. And I don't want to be that way because I think there was a time in my life where I would have been like, ooh, new Charlie Kaufman, and I would have obsessed over every little thing, and I would have had all these ideas about what this means and what this means and well, why are they old all of a sudden? And why is this? And right. now I just throw up my hands and say, you know what? I don't think I care. Tony Collette's having a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I, I am very much in the same boat where it's just like, this is a tedious movie. I, I know I, I hate to be that way. Like I really hate to be that way. I was reading a couple reviews of it that were very dismissive. of You, you could tell that the, the, the reviewer, I can't remember. I think it was Variety. I can't remember which review I read, but you could tell that out of hand, the reviewer was very excited to be able to shit on Charlie Kaufman as sort of like his new movie is as tedious as I found his old ones to be. And every art kid who likes Charlie Kaufman is wrong. And I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you why. And he wasn't really evaluating the film as much. He was just kind of trying to take a shit on everybody who likes Charlie Kaufman. I don't want to be that way because I, I like a lot of his work. And um, I do think you have to be in the right headspace. You have to be in the right emotional condition. You have to be there's a lot of factors that go into it because it is well crafted and it is. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, as I said, you know, it's a very Charlie Kaufman thing. I was trying to think of like, is it his most like inscrutable movie? And I have more problems with connected in New York, but um, Which not I, problems, I still have never seen. I pro just problems in terms of understanding it. I think it's really equally well crafted. Um, this one, I was kind of, once you got to the point where not to spoil anything, but you were starting to see, um, some of the overlapping of time in uh, in the meeting with the parents when they go to dinner and that central middle point of the movie yeah. um, where you started to see little costume changes and age changes and you start to say, oh, okay, I see what's going on here because she's talking about the relationship and how it reflects her and before you, you know, I'm thinking of ending things and before you know it, you're this far into it and I'm picking up a lot of what he's putting down but I don't have a cohesive take on the movie yet, really. And right now, it's just scrambled eggs in my brain. <laughs> Did it? I don't want to spoil anything because I definitely was seeing people post, you know, on Twitter or wherever, like this is their favorite movie of the year. 
And so then I watch it and I'm like jealous of their reaction because I'm like, oh, you found a way in that I was not able to find. And somehow I feel less than as a result. Um, sure. Did it somehow? I, I've never read the book. Uh, I know the book is well-loved. It it felt like it changed protagonists by the end. Yeah, and I have not read the book either, uh, so I, I can't speak to that, unfortunately. Um, I, I spent most of the movie thinking I'm watching her story, and yes. then suddenly by the end I'm like, oh, so a, I'm not watching her story? They're the last few minutes of the film, which are, to me, you know, the end is the conceit, right? The end is kind of right. where you build the thesis. Um, they do switch over to the Jesse Plemons character after we spend most of the movie um, with the Jesse Buckley character. And yeah, I was a little bit, again, I don't want to speak to criticisms of the film's construction because I just have not ingested it enough yet. And I'm not going to, I'm going to give Charlie Kaufman the benefit of the doubt, obviously. Um, but yeah, I was a little bit off with that too, where I'm, I'm watching a janitor walk naked through the high school and I'm thinking to myself, I know there's thematic relevance here. I just can't figure out what it is. <laughs> and, and he's giving a speech and, um, I, I, and again, I don't want to sound like that guy is just like, ah, Charlie Kaufman is just, you know, cause you know, David Lynch is my favorite filmmaker. And when, when I hear people dismissive of David Lynch, talk about how David Lynch is just weird for weird sake. And I just completely disagree with that. And I could see somebody shitting on Charlie Kaufman. Like, I ah, he's just trying to be inscrutable for the sake of seeming smart. And there's a lot of stuff at work in this movie, just like all his films. Um, but yeah, I am not to the point where I can enjoy this movie really yet, where to me, it's still an intellectual exercise and I don't necessarily know when I'm really going to want to sit it and down, excuse me, sit down and watch it again, which to me is the really hard part because it is a emotionally, um, taxing experience and ain't nobody got time for that. It's quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) I never have, even if I don't fully understand David Lynch, and certainly there have been, you know, uh, upon initial viewings, movies of his that I didn't get all the way. Um, sure. I never had a problem connecting to them. I always was still kind of in love with the way that they made me feel and the way that they challenged me. And uh, just the images that he would put on screen or some sort of emotional response that I would have to his work. And I, I was thinking of David Lynch during this because... I thought, well, gosh, I never have a problem with David Lynch. Why am I struggling so much with this? And again, I haven't seen Synecdoche, New York. I have only seen, I guess, of his directorial work, I've only seen this and Anomalisa, which I was equally cold towards. Uh, I appreciated it as a technical exercise in terms of being a movie made with puppets. Um, Maybe, for me at least, maybe I need Charlie Kaufman filtered through another filmmaker because his collaborations with Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry, like I've really liked those movies. They've been some of my favorite movies of the two thousands, or I guess in the case of being John Malkovich, the late nineties. Um, but Charlie Kaufman, uh, sort of pure undistilled Charlie Kaufman is not connecting with me. And we've run into that a lot where you see a creative kind of need that filter, you know, um, you need somebody to help interpret or when it comes to the script level, you know, cut down a little bit or make a change here or a change there. And, um, I agree with you, you know, to me, the difference, just thinking back to your David Lynch comparisons, like to me, David Lynch is a kid with like a paintbrush running around, like, you know, downtown painting everything going like, this is cool. Like, look how cool this paint is. Look at the colors of this paint. And like Charlie Kaufman is a, is like a grad student sitting cross-legged in the middle of like a, a highway, like crying, like, like guys, like <laughs> life is unbearable. Like, 
come read my thesis about how life is unbearable. And it's like, this is very different energies to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because I think it's incredibly well crafted and well acted, but it is definitely going to be a long time before I can really get next to it and be like, you know, because I've had this problem this year with, with Palm Springs where, you know, because I've talked a bunch about Palm Springs and how Palm Springs is still my favorite movie of the year. And, and, and I read a lot of things about it, people who like it and people who've dismissed it. And usually the people who dismiss it um, are dismissing it as, well, it's, it's trite, it's derivative. Like it's, yes, we've, we, yes, that's great. We've, we've seen this kind of story a million times. And I don't disagree with that at all. But to me, it's about the specific energy that right. a filmmaker brings. And to me, um, Palm Springs is a film that has a specific energy, both from the writing and the performance of the two leads and the construction that um, gives it a little bit more, uh, puts it a little bit more in my particular wheelhouse when it comes to that kind of story. Whereas a Charlie Kaufman film like this, yes, you've seen these sort of hyper intellectual, um, you know, dissections of relationship and personality and all these things before. And there's lots of movies like this. And Charlie Kaufman has made a, quite a few of them. Um, but whether or not they resonate on your level in terms of energy is kind of a subjective thing. It's kind of up to you. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that like during quarantine, I've only had the patience for face off, you know, but I, I had uh, something of a similar reaction to a movie like she dies tomorrow, which yeah. I got, she dies tomorrow. It wasn't that I didn't understand it in terms of what it was trying to say and what it's sort of about, but it, it's just, there's a little bit of that inscrutable element that I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I have the patience for this right now. Yeah, for sure. And maybe I'll go back to it someday. She dies tomorrow. I can't imagine I will because that movie is like a 90 minute panic attack. Yep. And I'm thinking of ending things. Maybe I'll go back to someday, but there wasn't enough, you know, again with David Lynch, it was like, I was intoxicated. I wanted to go back with this. I can't think of anything that is making me except for the challenge of like, well, I want to like this. Uh, Do you find as, and I don't know how I'd ask this. Do you find as you get older, dare I say, um, that you're less interested in a challenging movie or is it necessarily that you're less interested in certain kinds of challenges? For example, a relationship movie. Like, is it just that as you get into, you know, as, as you go on, you get less interested in like the problems of a young person sorting out a relationship and you could watch the most densely textual kind of film that really analyzes it really well, but you're just sort of, you're not past it, but you're kind of past it. Like I've thought I've done all the thinking about this that I ever want to do. And a movie that's about this, maybe I just don't want to do that kind of thinking anymore. And I should just pass this along to somebody else who wants it. Like, that's how I feel about this movie. I'm like, this movie's going to be very important to somebody Definitely. Who's, going, who's going through this right now. Yeah. I just don't have it in me anymore. <laughs> right. Or just who has the energy to devote to a movie Right. Um, because I'm sure there are still challenging movies like this that I have enjoyed or that I'm still into, even ones that I'm newly discovering. But, I mean, it does get harder the more life is pulling you in a million different directions. When you're 22, you can obsess over a movie, you know, and especially one that's on Netflix, you can just watch it over and over again. I remember when I first saw, again, to go back to David Lynch, Lost Highway, like being awake at night, thinking about that movie, driving to Tower Records, buying a copy of Wrapped in Plastic and reading like articles about the movie to try to really understand what it was about. Um, 
because I hadn't yet heard his quote about O.J. Simpson. <laughs> I was like, well, that was the key to unlocking the whole thing. What? You could have just told me that and I wouldn't have I would have lost I wouldn't have lost so much time. Um, and now it's just like, I don't know, I got kids and multiple jobs. <laughs> it's just like I don't have the I don't have the time or the energy to devote to this fucking Charlie Kaufman movie. And that, and that, that is the thing of it, though. It really is. And I do wonder about um, I wonder about our ability to because Adam, not to bring Adam again. Hey, Adam, um, we were just talking about feeling missing movies when movies make you feel things. And I was thinking about it as like, is it a function of time? Am I just having seen so many movies? Am I just tuned out of that where I go like, yeah, that's great. That's fine. Like, whatever. Yes, I understand. I've heard this one before. I've heard this song before. Let's move on. Um, and am I just less likely to, to buy into something? Like I was thinking of Eternal Sunshine and I'm thinking like there was a point in my life where Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind was the most important movie yeah. in my life. Like I was just like, this is exactly how I think about things. This is exactly how I feel about people. This is exactly how I see myself. And I just want this and this and this. And like at that age, at that place, it's incredibly important and, and it exists for a season in your brain. And then you move on. <laughs> And it's like, does this movie just belong to somebody who is in that stage and I just acknowledge it and then I move on? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I was really looking forward to it because, again, I would consider myself a Charlie Kaufman fan. And, you know, at the start of the year when Netflix announced their slate and it's like, we have the new movies from Spike Lee and David Fincher and Charlie Kaufman. It was like, oh my gosh, some of the biggest and most important artists working in film today are premiering their movies on Netflix. This is so exciting. And um, it, it it left me a little cold. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I can. we can move on unless you've got more. I'll no, no, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know, because we could just dig it into the ground. Um, I, uh, I finally saw The King of Staten Island. Um, okay. Which I don't know why I avoided. I guess I just did. Um, I, it's an Apatow movie. <laughs> it's, got <all laughs> usual, it's got all the usual Apatow problems um, and all the usual Apatow uh, positives. I don't really know from Pete Davidson. I haven't watched SNL in 10 years. Um, from what I hear, he's a, apparently a very successful comedian. Um, and uh, he's, he's, he's good. This is clearly, you know, to a degree autobiographical. And there's, I'm, I'm not really going to say anything new about it that people didn't say months ago, but. Um, I certainly did not regret my time watching it. Um, I enjoy Bill Burr as kind of a creepy, uh, creepy stepdad. Um, <laughs> and obviously Marissa Tomei is Marissa Tomei. So you, you can't go wrong. I like scumbum movies every now and again. You know? Okay, I, sure. Yeah. It's like, like a good scumbum movie. <laughs> I was, again, excited about this movie and wish I ended up liking it more than I did. I'm, I'm generally an Apatow fan, but I thought... And I really liked, you know, when he wrote a movie specifically for a performer like he did with Amy Schumer and Trainwreck, I was really happy with the results. I thought that really worked. And so to see him do the same for Pete Davidson, whose comic voice I haven't yet quite figured out, um, on SNL, it's kind of, it was like, I smoke a lot of weed, and then I think he went straight, and then it was like... I'm a mess. I'm a disaster of a human. I live at with my mom and my dad died and I have these famous celebrity relationships and breakups. Um, but I was excited to see Judd Apatow kind of figure out exactly Pete Davidson's kind of comic energy. And uh, the movie just didn't quite do it for me because it's just, 
entirely too shapeless and uh there's stuff in it like you said that really works but i thought that it was more like i found it to be more this is 40 than train wreck for sure yeah no it's definitely shapeless and it's definitely more of just about hanging out with this kid and rooting for him um which you know by the end of the movie i was and that's all i can really you know again this is probably going to be a movie that's very important to a 23 year old scum bum out there right now (laughs) he's he's going to see it and be like i need to do something um but uh and you know it is I, I like the way Davidson, obviously pulling from apparently real experience, um, you know, pulls a lot of the emotional beats out of it. The, 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 the movie, there is a 90 minute movie in here that is more like Trainwreck um, in terms of shape, yeah. uh, and like narrative cohesion. Um, but, you know, I did not regret my time watching it. it All right. Fun. Good. All right. Last one. Most important. You know where I'm going. Do I? I'm going to tell you about a little movie called Butt Boy. Oh Jesus! I forgot Bud Boy. <laughs> I texted you the other night about Bud Boy. You did. When you said you know where I'm going, I was like, I don't, I don't think I do. But then you say Bud Boy, and I know exactly where you're going. You did not watch Bud Boy. I did not. Despite my multiple pleadings, I just I told you have had too many other things I needed to watch, and, and also. yeah, and then I also watched a Vin Diesel movie that I shouldn't have. But <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> Should have watched Bud Boy. <laughs> So Butt Boy made the rounds earlier in the year, uh, as I think, at a, as a festival title. I don't remember. Um, I know it was relatively recently put on Amazon Prime, I think. Uh, Taylor Kornick is the director. Uh, I don't think this is his feature debut, or maybe. I may be talking out of my ass, uh, no pun intended. Um, Butt Boy is um, a movie I love. <laughs> um, so you're taking the... Not noir detective, but you're taking the gritty crime drama. Uh, you're taking a stock film detective, um, in this case, played by an actor named Tyler Rice, who has lost a ton of parts to Christian Bale. He is doing a hmm. he has a very Christian Bale face, but also greasy and sweaty and bloated by alcohol. Um, and it takes a concept, which is essentially that a man in an unhappy marriage discovers a particular fetish that gets a little bit out of control and leads to some incredibly transgressive behavior. Um, a detective who was on his case, um, who I'm trying to decide what to spoil, uh, ends up meeting him through a means of shared, um, trauma. I'll say it that way. They both have a particular preoccupation or trauma that brings them together for different reasons. Um, and it is a very, very dark comedy that plays its concept straight. Um, it is a movie about a man who puts things up his butt, um, any all, <laughs> all shapes and sizes. Uh huh. But it, but it's played like a hard-boiled detective story, um, and it is not posturing. It is not excessive in terms of its concept, which I know you're. How could a movie about that be not be excessive um but it does not go for the dumb joke it goes for the interesting joke that is sort of in its way paralleling um addiction uh it is about addiction and it is about how we get wrapped up in things that compromise relationships and family um i can't really go too much more into it because i want you to see it but um i appreciated it 
for its tonal control. Um, you're going to see, if, if you choose to watch it, you'll put it on and the first 10 minutes is this very um, uh, stylized opening sequence. Uh, you get about 10, 12 minutes in the movie and then the opening credits start after this punctuated ending to that opening sequence. And it's one of those movies where you you feel like you're in good hands where you watch a movie, you op the opening 10, 15 minutes of a movie and you go, oh, okay, I see what this person is doing and I'm going to go where they take me. Um, so as much as I can't really say, but boy, very many more times without laughing because I am a 12 year old boy. Um, I actually do legitimately think this movie was pretty great. Um, I would put it in your butt. I would put it in my butt. No. Um, yeah, I set that one up for you. Nice. Um, <laughs> I, I, the filmmaker I was thinking of a lot um, in preparing to talk to you about it was probably Lucky McKee. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to be as much on his wavelength in terms of what you would like about the movie. But if I was going to put it, I would think that that's probably in, it's probably in the same vein where Lucky McKee to me makes movies that are like transgressive, but also there, there is a thematic route to that. You know, you can use kind of maybe gross or weird things um, to say something. And right. I would say that Butt Boy does the same thing. Hmm. Wow. You've completely sold me on Butt Boy. I, I, I can't really. I mean, I, I don't want to say too much. And um, I just would encourage anybody who's seen it maybe to leave a comment about it to convince Patrick to do so. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, yeah, no, I, that's all I can really say. I, I think I think. Um, what was the other one? Uh, you know what? No, let's just, let's just move on because I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. But I really enjoyed it. All right. Was the original title, I'm thinking of putting things up my butt? <laughs> but there is a moment in the movie where you literally have, like, you think of, like, you remember, like, Dr. Sleep? There's that scene where you, uh, Ewan McGregor is so, he's so about to put that, like, to open that bottle. Like, there's yeah. that moment in the room where he's just, like, you can see him wrestling with it. You can see him just, like, and you feel for him and you feel you feel anxiety and you feel his shame and you and you just you just begging him. This movie does that, but it's a, a, a game piece going up a guy's butt where the guy's looking at it and you're just like, don't do it. Don't you do it. And he does it. Well, I mean, it, is it like a chess piece or is it like the thimble uh, from Monopoly? Because that's no I big believe, deal. That's I believe, I believe it's Yahtzee. I think it was a Yahtzee piece. OK, Yahtzee is like dice, isn't it? Isn't doesn't have the little? I have to look it up now. Hold on. Doesn't Yahtzee have the little men that move? Not little men, but the little triangle things that move around the board. I don't know what you call them. Little rounded triangle pieces. I thought um, Yahtzee was just like a dice rolling game. Maybe it is. I don't know. I'll but we're down what's a the, weird uh, tangent now. Yeah, it's the one. Oh, I see, because I'm trying to think of the other movie I wanted to think of. Um, Yahtzee. All right, now I'm googling it. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yahtzee is just dice. Just dice rolling. Like craps, but lamer. Yeah. All right. Just think about it as Monopoly pieces then. What's, there's this, there's this okay. very, very, very emotionally intense scene where a guy's going to put a Monopoly piece up his butt. Um, he also puts dogs and small children up there, Patrick. This is a serious film. Well, sure. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, if you if you ask me right now, does the the last part of the film take place inside a rectum? I'm not going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. I'm not going to say yes. I guess I better watch this movie. I'm not going to say no. I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to see it before this podcast, and we could have had a very thoughtful discussion on Butt Boy. But there's a good chance that by the time this podcast posts, yes, 
I will have seen Butt Boy. I can only hope that your life will be enriched in that way. I will have put it in my butt. Is this in your top 10 for the year? <laughs> uh, right now, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right now it is. Yeah, I um, I'm I'm taking some time away from it before I, before I rewatch it. But um, right now it is just because it's one of those you know speaking of energies, it's just got that energy that I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's all I got. All right. Um, I've got a couple. I'm thinking of ending things was uh, obviously the big one, and we spent a good deal of time on that. So I watched a Vin Diesel movie that I had never seen that I had always meant to get around to. And that is called the last witch hunter. Uh, mm. original title. I'm thinking of hunting witches. <laughs> <laughs> and I like Vin Diesel in full on dork mode. Like, and I don't say that as a pejorative. I'm saying that in a, in a in a good way. I think Vin Diesel makes Fast and Furious movies just so he can finance like Riddick and Bloodshot and The Last Witch Hunter. I think this is where his heart truly lies. And the rest of the country really only knows him as Dominic Toretto. I, however, know him as The Last Witch Hunter. It is not a great movie. Uh, it is very slick because it's directed by Breck Eisner of Sahara fame and the Crazies remake, which is actually really solid. Um, but I was watching it. I was like, boy, this looks really good and probably didn't cost a ton of money. And I wasn't I couldn't remember who directed it. I had it in my head that it was like a Dominic West or a Simon West or a Dominic Cena. And uh then I remembered I was getting them that that confused with the Nicolas Cage movie season of the witch. So different witch hunter movie, different slick director. Um, it's a pretty dopey movie that gets way too bogged down in like the rules of being the last witch hunter and the rules of witches bringing their magic to our world. And every time a movie starts talking about like, Ooh, they'll come to our world. I mentally check out cause I just get annoyed with that shit. Um, but I was thoroughly entertained for the hour and 45 minutes that it went by. Um, and part of that I'm sure has to do with the presence of what is her name? She's married to Jon Snow. Um, Rose Leslie. Thank you, Rose Leslie. I knew it was Rose. Uh, she has a supporting part in the movie. The cast is way overqualified. Elijah Wood is in there. Fucking Michael Caine is in there. <laughs> like, yeah. What is yeah. Michael Caine doing in The Last Witch Hunter? Um, I'm thinking of ending with <laughs> Uh Rose Leslie is very fun to watch and she's playing sort of a modern day witch who helps out Vin Diesel and it's a stupid movie that uh that I enjoyed watching. I've seen it uh I don't remember when uh probably a Saturday afternoon sometime when I was paying half attention to it but I am with you on the Vin Diesel thing. My question to you is what do you think Vin Diesel thinks Vin Diesel is? What what do you think he thinks his persona is? That's a good question. Um, I think he thinks he's all things. I think he thinks he is Dominic Toretto, but also he's all these other things. Um, 
And America is not willing to accept him as a witch hunter or as a bloodshot or as a Riddick. I wish he could just make Riddick movies for the rest of his life. If Vin Diesel just stopped making all other movies and once a year put out a Riddick movie, I would go opening day. For sure. 100%. And Riddick has not aged super well, the most recent one, because I watched it pretty recently, I think, to get the taste of bloodshot out of my mouth. And the effects have not aged especially well, even though it's only a couple years old. Uh, but the movie still kicks ass. I'm trying to remember, because I saw Bloodshot. I definitely saw Bloodshot. I, I, I feel like I liked Last Witch Hunter more. Oh, for sure. Um, nah, Last Witch Hunter, to me, feels like it has more of a directorial hand, whereas yes. Bloodshot felt like it was just Vin Diesel. You know, you hear those stories about, like, Kevin Smith tells the stories about making Cop Out, where it was basically just whatever time we want to start, or whatever time Bruce Willis wants to start, that's when we start. Yeah. Whatever shot Bruce Willis wanted to do that day, that's what he does. Whatever lines of dialogue Bruce Willis wanted to do, that was it. That's what I felt about with Bloodshot, where it's like, this is Vin Diesel thinking, this is my Marvel movie, and right. I'm, I am the creative force behind it. Yes. Um, but, you know, we're, we're very pro we're very pro Vin around here, because he, he's Vin's a huge nerd, and we like nerds, and um, I will certainly watch anything he does, but uh, I, I started to read the last Witch Hunter Wikipedia summary as you were talking, and I, I, I my eyes started to cross, and I, <laughs> I, I almost fell asleep. So I, I would like to rewatch it, if only for the presence of uh, uh, Miss John Snow herself, Rose Leslie. Yes. Did um, you ever but, see Honeymoon? By the way, what was it? Did you ever see Honeymoon? No, I don't think so. It's she's the lead. It's uh, an indie horror film that came out a couple of years ago. That's okay. really good. I just Googled honeymoon like I was going to get some <laughs> It wasn't the first thing that popped up. <laughs> That's dumb. Uh, I will watch it. No, she's great. She's great in lots of things. I really enjoy her quite a bit, aside just from games of, uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Check out Honeymoon um, for sure. I will. I will for sure. We showed our kids Sleepy Hollow. Um, yes. First, we showed them the animated adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but we skipped the Mr. Toad stuff and just went right to the legend of sleepy hollow, the animated one from 1949. And then I was like, well, they can handle sleepy hollow because they've been wanting to watch some scarier stuff. And my daughter is obsessed with the fact that she's now seen three rated R movies and she will tell anyone who will listen, including her teacher at school, (laughs) every chance she gets, I've seen three rated R movies And so now I was like, well, this will be her fourth rated R movie. And, uh, you know, fall is creeping its way into our lives. And Sleepy Hollow is a good way to kind of kick that off. It's bloodier than I remembered it being. I was like, she can handle it. It's like a couple beheadings. No big deal. Um, She was disturbed and upset by the beheadings. Not so much that she looked away or asked to turn the movie off or had any trouble sleeping. Like, she wasn't scarred by it at all. After maybe the third one, she said, is anybody else going to get their head cut off? (laughs) I said, yeah, I think so, because that's the joke of that movie. Like, I really think that's why Tim Burton made the movie, because it's it's pretty incredible how many people get their heads cut off in that movie. It's like somebody doesn't somebody get cut in half. Casper Van Dien. Casper Van Dien gets cut in half. Spoilers. Brom bones. If you're familiar with the Washington Irving story, this (laughs) movie takes a turn from the Washington Irving story 
because uh, Brom Bones does not make it to the end. Instead, he gets bisected, <laughs> bisected. by the Headless Horseman, uh, played by Christopher Walken. So I'm just a huge Sleepy Hollow fan. Uh, we have a podcast on it from a couple years ago when uh, Heath Holland was still with the site. Um, he and I did a show on Sleepy Hollow because he's a big fan of it as well. Mostly for the way that it feels, because as I was watching the movie, there's a whole mystery element in terms of who the horseman is targeting and why. And I realized I've seen this movie probably five times and never given a shit about any of that stuff. Um, I'm just waiting for the next head to get cut off. It's like, it's like with Mars Attacks where the joke is just how often the aliens will like offer peace and then shoot someone. It's just the same joke over and over again. That's what he's doing with sleepy hollow, except it's beheading. Uh, the cast is amazing. It's all these great British character actors. It looks and feels just like a hammer movie. Isn't Michael Goff in that movie? He sure is. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing cast with, with an incredibly miscast Christina Ricci, unfortunately. Uh, I like Christina Ricci. It's not just the issue of her being 20 years younger than Johnny Depp. It kind of strips away, you know, there's so much about Christina Ricci that would make you think, oh, she's the perfect Tim Burton leading lady. Um, but it strips away all of those things about her and just tries to make her this sort of fair haired, innocent and unfortunately, and the part is underwritten. It's not entirely her fault. Um, but I always felt like she was miscast. I don't know where you're at. I haven't seen the movie in years, probably not since maybe the year it came out. So I, I unfortunately don't have a take on it, but, um, I remember certainly enjoying it. And, uh, speaking of Mars attacks, I did just recently rewatch Mars attacks and that movie holds the hell up. That movie is great. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mostly just remember the, uh, the heads, heads, heads will roll. Heads right? will roll. It sure was. That's a beautiful tagline. That is a tagline for the ages. Uh, he- heads do roll, by the way. Yeah, they well, yeah, they're thinking of they're thinking of rolling. <laughs> Percy I'm, was like, "I'm thinking of ending." This I'm movie. thinking of beheading things. <laughs> um, and the only other movie I'll talk about is I wrapped up um, watching a bunch of movies for Fantasia Fest, and I don't think I'm going to get to write a full review of this one. So I normally wouldn't talk about it because I don't know when people can see it. Um, but I want everyone to put it on their radar. It's this tiny little Canadian horror thriller called For the Sake of Vicious. And the great thing about covering a festival is you just kind of give yourself over to the programming. You don't pay attention to what movies are about necessarily. I mean, sometimes like when you're trying to decide, okay, which of these movies do I want to check out? Sometimes it's like, oh, there's an actor in this that I want to see, or I know this filmmaker, I liked his or her last movie, so I want to check that one out. Um, This one I honestly think I picked because it was from Canada and it was 80 minutes. And I was like, yeah, okay. And the title was intriguing. So I knew nothing about it going in. And as much as I would say that's the way to see it, I am going to spoil a couple little things. So if you don't want anything spoiled uh, for this movie that you may never get a chance to see, um, don't listen for the next two minutes or so. Uh, It starts out as sort of this chamber drama with these three people. Um, A man who 
who thinks that another man raped his daughter and is holding him hostage in the home of this nurse who just comes home and is like, why are these two guys in my kitchen? Why is this guy tied up? What's going on? And that's the first half of the movie is just sort of this back and forth between these three people. And then at a certain point, some people show up to the house. I won't say necessarily why they're there, but they're like this weird biker gang in these Halloween, because it takes place on Halloween. They're in Halloween masks, they're in motorcycle helmets, and it becomes Assault on Precinct 13, where it's like they're all trying to get into the house, and now these three people have to work together to get them out. And it becomes this brutally violent home invasion movie um, that just kicks ass. There's these action sequences that are just punishing and uh, in these very, you know, enclosed environments because they're in this little suburban house. So it's in a kitchen, it's in a bathroom, but there are these action scenes that go on and on and on. I completely fell in love with this movie. I want people to put it on their radar. Maybe Shudder will pick it up. You know, a lot of times some of these festival festival movies when they don't find another home um, do wind up going to Shudder. So... I have high hopes that maybe they'll pick it up. I'm just looking at the poster. It's a pretty great poster. Um, I, uh, what, it sounds stressful. (laughs) (laughs) What, what makes what, I mean, and I can't wait to check it out. What makes the, the action or the brutality particularly uh, memorable? Cause you've seen a lot of bloody movies. I've watched them with you. What, 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 is there anything particular about this, you know, gore violence in particular? It's just well staged. Yeah, it's well staged. It's the way that they use things around the house to cause damage to other people. Um, it's the way that the human body is destroyed (laughs) in the process. You know, uh, you see things you haven't really seen in movies before. And so it's just, it's very kind of, visceral and and single-minded and i like how single-minded it is in terms of like this is what we're doing now and they commit to doing it a hundred percent when does stuff go up their butts uh i'm trying to remember because that's kind of a deal breaker for me it's a lot of jenga pieces okay all right but then i think at one point the tower collapses and that person (laughs) loses i forget the (laughs) rules of jenga but they also win because everything goes up their butt (laughs) <laughs> well for sure yeah <laughs> jenga if this podcast nice <laughs> yeah, so um pop- so look for that if it ever comes out i'm sure if it does become available to stream i will start loudly beating the drum so just pay attention to F this movie and uh i will let everyone know that the movie is now available because i don't i don't think it has a distributor i have no idea um what the future, a lot of the movies that I did watch for Fantasia, I know are going to shutter. So there's some really cool stuff coming your way very soon. This was not one of them. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. I feel like, as you said before, shutter gets like first right of refusal for a lot of stuff. Now. Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of planted their flag. Cool. Yeah. I can't wait to check it out. I still remember there was a podcast years ago where, I think Shutter had just been announced and I was talking to Doug and I was like, I don't know if I'll get it. I mean, I already <laughs> own all these horror movies and boy, I, I could that. not have been more wrong. Right. Shutter is great. I mean, Shutter yeah. is just, it's just one of the best in terms of just 
in the day where everyone is kind of budgeting their streaming service yes. preferences, it's Shutter is so incredibly worth it. And pretty affordable. Like it was five bucks For a sure. month until a couple of weeks ago, and now I think it's six. But yeah, uh, well worth it. For sure. Patrick, what if the new James Bond movie was called No Time to Put Stuff Up My Butt? Uh, I would risk COVID to go see it. That's what I thought. I haven't even watched that new trailer. Mike texted me and said, like, yeah, I know I'm probably not going to get to see the movie, but that new trailer has me really excited. I refuse to even watch it because I know I, I'm, I'm going to see the movie when I can, and I don't need to see any more footage from it. I very rarely get into trailers anymore. I, I was, I still haven't seen the Tenet trailer. I don't know what Tenet's about. I have no clue. I know I... it's going to save cinema. But I... <laughs> it has. No, it came out. It, yeah. Cinema has been saved. Oh, I saw a weird, like, 10-minute preview of Tenet before something. Okay. Star Wars, maybe? maybe? It might have been before Rise of Skywalker. They showed, like, a clip. It wasn't a trailer. It was, like, a weird clip where they're in an opera house and everyone disappears. I don't know what the fuck was going on. And that's okay. all I've seen. I haven't seen a trailer either. Yeah, I didn't. I, I haven't seen it. But I was just... It's so weird. I just haven't even thought about that. Yeah, but Bond, I mean, I'm of course I'm going to see it. So yeah. I don't even... I All right. All right. Should we talk about uh, men in black who put stuff up their butts? <laughs> but then forget that they put stuff up their butts. <laughs> because they put the flashy thing up their butt. Because they put the flashy thing up their butt. Yeah. Um, men in black was a movie you texted me and said, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> There's never been a podcast about men in black. I said, I do that sometimes. no. And you said, ha, that is a crime. We must do a podcast on Men in Black. So what was it that made you think of it and that made you want to do a show on Men in Black? Uh, I don't remember what made me think of it. I don't specifically remember what made me text you. But I do remember thinking that is odd, especially for a site like ours, uh, to not have covered Men in Black yet. Um, Men in Black is a movie that um, meant a lot to me uh, as a kid. Um, it was... I think at the peak of the millennium. Um, uh, I, I believe think, so. I believe this looking, was right at the peak. At the years because '96 is Independence Day. Yeah. This is '97. Yeah. Big Willie, Big Willie style is '97. Yeah. Right. We were all getting jiggy with it. By '99, um, the bloom is off the rose a little bit. Right. Because we travel to the wild, wild west. That's when we get wild, wild west, which ends and up we... being which he turned the Matrix down for. Good um, call. Uh, which, you know, yeah, like you do. He um, almost turned this movie down. Well, he, who originally, wasn't it Chris O'Donnell was originally offered this part, I think? Missed opportunity there. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and a loaf of white bread in <laughs> Men in Black. Yeah, supposedly Jada Pinkett Smith convinced him to do Men convinced in Black. Do he, which... I don't trust Will Smith. No. <laughs> he turns down. I just, I as soon as I found out, you know, that Tarantino wanted him for Django Unchained, and he turned it down for reasons. Um, I was like, oh, Will Smith. I don't know if you are the best judge of your own career. And the no. more stories I hear, the more I'm like, the fact that Will Smith is as popular and as successful as he is is kind of a miracle because he yeah. seems to actively be working against this <laughs> it's not for lack of trying like that right. like he really goes out of his way to sabotage himself <laughs> um i can that's crazy too i don't understand turning tarantino down for like pulp fiction like oh you made this indie movie i've never seen but how do you turn tarantino down in what 2012 right like, what yeah 
Um, yeah, so so this is so I'm 11 when this movie comes out. This movie is huge, huge, huge in my life because I had seen Independence Day not in theaters. I would have been too young, um, I think, or I just didn't go. For, maybe my parents didn't want to go or whatever. Um, but I'd watched it a ton on. I want to say I'd probably at this point watched it a ton on VHS because I do know that I saw Men in Black in the theater. Um, and I think the, one of the major things that would have compelled me to do that besides it being a sci-fi movie would have had to have been Will Smith because he was just, I mean, it was the, it was the will. It was the will in him. Um, we were all just living in it. Yeah. We were, this was his, you know, this was his time because bad boys is 95, right? So yeah. So 97 is like the peak of it. 97 is like, it never got any better for Will Smith than that, even though he would continue to make successful movies. Um, and then I would argue, I think in terms of performance, I think this is, I think one of his best. Um, I think, you know, uh, independence day, he's, I think he's doing one thing, maybe two things, um, really, really well. in that Will Smith way, I think that maybe to me plays the most Will Smith iconography kind of things where he's doing those big things that he did, but he has a couple little things going on in this movie that I think are a little bit more layered in terms of performance. It's still a movie star performance, but, um, I think he's really, really excellent in this movie. I think Tommy Lee Jones is excellent in this movie. I think that Will, um, Willem Dafoe. Wow, that would have been interesting. Um, <laughs> Vincent <Dinoffer>. Avenge me! <laughs> Put things up my butt. Um, you know, Spider-Man! <laughs> all this webbing. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio is, is crazy. Oh my gosh, Vincent D'Onofrio is on another planet in this movie. <laughs> literally. We gotta talk about that. Um, I do, but, but I, I did want to uh, do a show on this just because I also do think, having watched it twice in the last week uh, to prepare, I, I still think it's I think it's an excellent movie. I just I mean I can watch Independence Day or you know Bad Boys Two or things like that and be like yeah you know there's things here that work and things that don't. Um, I really think this movie holds up uh, specifically on a writing level, um, and it is interesting because. Uh, as of recording this last week, our show was on Bill and Ted, which is a co-written uh, joint of Ed Solomon. Yeah. And then uh, our last show, I think, was Training Day, right? And this is kind of a Training Day of sorts. So oh. we're, we're kind of we're kind of continuing a theme here. Interesting. Uh, see, you see what I'm doing here? You put that up your button, Smokey. Um, <laughs> the so the millennium was a huge part of my adolescence, obviously. Um, but I really wanted to do a show on this just because I think it is one of those movies that, I mean, I put it, I did a little just cursory Wikipedia the other day as I was making my notes. And, um, I would put this in like top five sci-fi movies of the nineties for me. Um, just personally, just maybe not movies that I like the most, but in terms of like a sci-fi premise and what it does with a sci-fi premise and how it plays the sci-fi premise for comedy and, the world building and all those things. Um, I, I really, I think this is a strong movie worth certainly worth talking about. I know I brought this up on the bill and Ted show because I was talking about Dean Parasot and galaxy quest. And I mentioned galaxy quest as being one of maybe only five special effects comedies that work. And I don't know what two of those are. <laughs> maybe you do. <laughs> Cause for me, the list is ghostbusters Men in Black, Galaxy Quest, yeah, and then I just have two slots open. Yeah, no, and and when I was making, I mean, I was going just pure sci-fi movies, right. not even no, just I know. special effect comedies. But yeah, no, I don't know. There, it's very rare. Well, because I feel like you would get too focused on one or the other. Exactly. Because like when you're trying to make one of these movies, you lean too much on one or the other. This right. one integrates them, I think, really well. Um, yes. But we can get into that. So yeah, so I wanted to, I wanted to do this show just because I think it's it's one, it's a really formative movie for me. 
um, and uh, one that holds up and one that I think there's a lot of layers to talk about um, because it was the millennium. <laughs> it definitely, I mean, I remember in 97 seeing it and it was one of those movies that was like, you went because it was Will Smith and it was Tommy Lee Jones and it was a summer movie and it was Aliens. It was Will Smith and Aliens again one year after Independence Day. Um, and I don't know that I had high expectations. I never read the comic on which it is based uh, but I remember feeling like, oh, that was such a pleasant surprise. That was so much better than I think anything that I was expecting because, you know, I just was expecting some movie star stuff and some alien special effects. I wasn't expecting some of the pathos that there is in the movie. I wasn't expecting the screenplay to be as kind of tight as it is or the world building to be as interesting as it is or even you know knowing that rick baker did the aliens i don't even think i was expecting it to be as visually interesting as it is i was admiring we'll have to talk about what the hell happened to barry sonnenfeld but that guy had a run in the 90s you know i'm not the biggest adams family fan but i love adams family values uh get shorty i think is amazing men in black i think is amazing and i just I was watching that scene where they're first in the morgue with Linda Fiorentino and we see her get flashy thinged for the first time, but it's behind the screen and yep. it's just in silhouette and the shot continues and Tommy Lee Jones enters the room and then we keep the scene going. And I was like, well, what an interesting way to show that, you know, and to sort of economical way of showing not just that she's being flashy thinged because we've already seen the technology work and to keep the story moving. Um, into the next scene. And I was like, man, Barry Sonnenfeld really knew what was up for a time. And I don't know exactly what happened. I feel like it was RV. I feel like RV is where, or maybe it was a big trouble, right? Wasn't that him too? Big trouble was him. Yeah. So he does all three men in blacks, right? He does wild, wild west. Oh, never mind. It was wild. wild. I forgot that he did wild, wild Wild west. That's where it is. When you say broke him, I mean, wild, wild west was successful, though, wasn't it? Uh, was was didn't Wild Wild West make money? Hold on, let's it may have. Yeah, but I it, know, it, you know what? Yeah, it was too expensive. Yeah, if it had been fifty million dollars, it would have made because it made two twenty two domestic. So you would have seen, which is insane because it is which, such a piece of shit. And like, but it was the millennium. It was the millennium, and just on the basis of that song, I feel like people went to see that movie. By the way, that song, much yes. better movie song than Men in Black. Well, because that's, you know, because Men in Black doesn't even use it in the movie. This, right. Wild Wild West uses it in the movie, right? Isn't it in the movie at some point? Isn't it in the credits? Maybe we need to do a Wild Wild West show. I, I don't I've know. thought about it for years, honestly, yeah. and I can never bring myself to do it. I saw that movie once in 1999. I have not seen it since. Uh, every once in a while, I'm like, maybe there's a show there. And then I abandon that notion very quickly. If you decide to do it, let me know, because I remember seeing Wild Wild West and then immediately going to Burger King to get my special sunglasses. I don't know if you remember, but there was a tie-in with Burger King where they did... Uh, for Wild Wild West sunglasses? Jim Jim West sunglasses. You could get you could get the Kevin Klein sunglasses or the Will Smith sunglasses. Oh, I for sure would have gotten the Kevin Klein sunglasses. You're a little cooler than me, and you always have been. But I just, I, anytime there was a fast food tie-in with Kevin Klein, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> you think Kevin Klein? How many times has Kevin Klein been an action figure? 
Oh my gosh. I have a whole set of Hardy's yeah. collectible yeah. Kevin Klein glasses. There was that great fish called Wanda set. Yeah. No, that yeah. was those were good. Yeah. Uh the uh in and out glasses yeah. I still yeah. use to this day. Dave. The January man I remember was <laughs> uh a popular one. But um yeah, no, I I, uh, I think there's a show in Wild Wild West. I think we can we get one out of it. But this to me is one of those like rolling snowball movies where um, you like, for example, the flashy thing. Like one of my favorite little rule threes things is within the first like 10 minutes of the movie, you know what the neuralizer does right. to the point where um, when Rip Torn tells the army guys uh, we're administering an eye exam, you don't even have to see it. I mean, you do. And it's one of those funny background events that this movie does really well that I'll get into maybe later. But I love the economics of the storytelling where you're about 12 minutes, 15 minutes into the movie, not even. And you already know when he says eye exam, you know what the joke is. Right. Because they've used the neuralizer a couple times in a way that, you know, is, is really uh, effective. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know what happened to Barry Sonnefant. I mean, I guess I mean, he just got lazy. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a, a JB. I know is a fan of Big Trouble. I was not a Big Trouble fan, um, and then I just feel like the 2000s. I, I, I don't know. Nine Lives he made. Nine Lives. I don't remember what Nine Lives is. It's a Nine cat Lives movie. Is a cat movie with Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey so becomes a cat. Oh, now I remember. Yeah. So uh, clearly he's in director jail, right? I mean, if he's making the Kevin Spacey cat movie, like he's still, I mean, he's producing, you know, like, I don't know, maybe he just doesn't care anymore. He's producing a, no, no, actually no. After nine lives, he doesn't, he produces men in black international. Sorry. Which I still haven't seen. I know you took one for the team and saw it and reviewed it for the site. I have yet to see it. And I honestly meant to, I really did have like too many things that I had to watch over the last week, partly because of festival screeners, partly because of shows coming up. Um, doing research and stuff like that. So that's why I didn't get to see Butt Boy, but it's also why I didn't get to see... I wanted to watch Men in Black 2. Yeah. Because I think to understand what Men in Black does so well, you only need to look at Men in Black 2 and say, here's the way to take the same ingredients and completely mess it up. I have not seen Men in Black 2 in years, but I do remember feeling like it was was completely overstuffed. It became... Men in Black became that surprise hit that the studio went, okay, well, everything that we have, we're going to throw into Men in Black. Like, Johnny Knoxville is in that movie. Like, yeah. it's it's incredibly overstuffed, and it's one of those, like, Christmas tree things where it's like, okay, we have this successful thing. It's growing really tall. Now everybody, every producer, every executive, every suit can hang a little thing on it, and that'll be our big blockbuster movie. Right. And I, I never even saw Men in Black 3. I still have not seen Men in Black 3. It's surprisingly decent. Um. Which I've heard. I've, I've yeah. always heard Men in Black. It was like an apology sequel, basically. It was like kind of them saying, all right, let's try this again. And it's not great, but it's like a third Men in Black is a movie no one was asking for, particularly after Men in Black 2. And right. so I remember going to see it almost out of obligation and being like, oh, actually, that you know, there's more of like an emotional hook to the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember liking it, but I don't think I've gone back to revisit it. So the only one that I really have seen multiple times as the original Men in Black. And it's the only one I think worth seeing. Like I said, I haven't seen three, but I've seen the other ones and you should just not bother with them. <laughs> um, but they are an interesting experiment. Let me ask you a question. Why was the Willennium also the age of Tommy Lee Jones in my childhood? Because between this and Batman Forever, 
um, which were two of the most important movies of my childhood. <laughs> um, the Fugitive, like, I, you know, I'm like looking at this as like Volcano. I was a big fan of because it was on cable a lot. And like U.S. Marshals, I remember going to see, even though I was 12, I think. Um, I, what is what is it about? Because Tommy Lee Jones seems to be one of those actors who just could care less about acting. But he's also I think he's great in this movie. He is great in this movie. And I think, you know, he'd been acting since the 70s in movies. Um, But it's not until The Fugitive that he becomes a movie star. Right. And that's when they put him in big studios. And that's right. So then he can start collecting paychecks. So he starts making a lot of really shitty movies. uh, But he gets paid a bunch of money for them. So, um, and they're not all shitty, right? I I don't hate Batman Forever. And Men in Black is very good. and, uh, And he's really, really good in it. And he's a really good counterpoint to will smith you know i think will smith is sort of the one who gets a lot of the obvious comedic beats but as i watch the movie as an older person tommy lee jones has all the laughs for me the oh he's so funny yeah there is a moment and speaking of directing there is a moment that I, i i noted um when he's in the interrogation room when when he goes to see will smith the first time he unplugs the camera and he says um what did the alien say and he says oh the world's coming to an end and he says the it cuts back and says, "Did they say when?" And it's just this deadpan look on Tommy Lee Jones's face. And Sonnenfeld holds on it like three seconds too long. Yeah. This is a weird thing that if you're listening to this, you're going to have to go back and watch. It is a weirdly long edit where like he's just staring and he's got this like like just hangdog look on his face. And I had to pause the movie because I could not stop laughing because I don't know if they told Jones that they were going to hold on his face. But there's something about that delivery um, and that presence. He has this interesting presence in the movie. And I have a whole thesis about his the, his story arc, which I think is really, really um, important and really interesting now that I'm watching this movie as an adult. But he has this energy about him that is – I want to be careful how I say this, but it's almost Harrison Ford energy. It's not the pure sex appeal of Harrison Ford, but it is a um, – it is a uh, this is just Tuesday for me kind of thing where like I'm not taking this too seriously, but right. not in a not in a in a way that's I'm above this, but in a way that's like, yeah, it's all fine. Let's let's, let's go. Come on. Let's do it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think he's wonderful. I think he has. And allegedly he, he had rewritten. He had done some of his own zingers. So apparently some of these zingers, I don't know which ones, but according to Seinfeld, um, I listened to a little bit of the commentary. He wrote some of these zingers himself because apparently David Kep did a, a, a little screen doctoring on this, a little script doctoring. Uh, but uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who is famously sort of irascible yeah, um, right. to work with, uh, apparently did love the script and wanted some some zingers. So some of these are his. Well, he could not sanction the script's buffoonery. <laughs> not sanction. He, he just, you know, he couldn't get the thing up his butt. <laughs> I love his response when he says, uh, did he say when? Yeah, yeah. Because I think just in that little simple line of dialogue, it sort of lets you know how serious this is. Yep. Um, I think it's a great, response to yeah I, I i love that line that moment is just so great and just yeah. and just the way he like I, I guess we can kind of get into the story itself and and just to me the storytelling is so great like i love when they go in to cg like that scene where they go in to cgs like that could be you could teach that scene because it's they both roll up and 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 um jay is is dismissive because he tells him right away he tells him the truth he says who are you and he says oh i'm part of a bureau that licenses and regulates alien activity on earth right oh, okay sure you are buddy they go in, 
this is the pawn shop. This is, you know, he's an NYPD cop. This is one of his contacts. He knows this guy. I'm going to go and put my thing down. Right. <laughs> and Jones says to him, yeah, go, go put your thing down. And he goes in there <laughs> and, he, and he runs the whole scam. Right. And, and Tony Shalhoub is great in that scene where he's like, Oh, what are, the, what are these? Oh, I thought I turned these into the proper authorities. Right. So it's this, it's this scene. He, uh, Kay lets the scene play out where Edwards does his thing, where he goes in and he puts his thing down and all that. And he says, um, you know, no guns, what you see is what you get. And then Kay walks in and all the energy in the scene changes. And he goes, oh, hey, Kay, how are you? And then the whole, you know, show him the imports. That whole scene, the way that scene progresses, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about snowball effect in a script, like where you start out with a piece of information and then another piece of information gets attached to it and then right. another one and another one and it builds and builds and builds to the point where at the end of that scene, um, you're just laughing because, he, you know, he blows his head off, right? Which is a great effect. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Edwards turns and goes, to, you know, I'm, you know, he goes to shoot him. He says, put the gun down. And he goes, he's like, I warned him. And he's like, you warned him. Like, he has this whole scene where there's this internal, there's this internal comedy to the scene that goes beyond just, I blew an alien's head off or, or whatever that, um, then sells, uh, Jay's character on what's going on. And then he tells him to point out the gun, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this wonderful, all these, all these scenes have these wonderful little building blocks in them. Um, and they're all character based. They're all character driven. Right. We all we get this sense of um, that Kay is testing Jay and he's getting his incredulity to work for him, um, which I think is one really economical from a story perspective where you can kind of skip past a lot of exposition that you would normally have to do. Um, and two, tells you a lot about who these two men are and their relationship with each other. Yeah, it never gets bogged down in the shit that I'm talking about that I hate in The Last Witch Hunter or on The Last Witch Hunter's Wikipedia page. Right. Where it's characters just dumping exposition on one another and that becomes the plot. Yep. You know, there's world building in this story, but there's a plot on top of it. There, There's something that they have to do and accomplish while we're also learning about this underground uh, organization that Will right. Smith is becoming a part of. I never made the training day comparison, but that's actually very clever. It was right up my butt all along. Um, <laughs> the... And then also the way that, like you mentioned, like the training day aspect, this is only two days, right. right? It's only, it's two days in these guys' lives. And then you find out at the end, as he says, I wasn't training a partner, I was training a replacement. And when you rewatch the movie through that lens, you see a lot of that training day stuff is Kay making sure that Jay can do it. Like the ending, like when he, like the joke of, I want my gun back, right? We're skipping all around here, but whatever. Yeah. Um, he says, um, at the end, you know, make sure he stays on this planet. He gets up and he says, where are you going? I'm getting my gun back. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's at the end of the movie that you realize it's, I mean, maybe, but it's not necessarily that he's going to get his gun back. It's that he's testing Jay. He's basically trusting the future of the planet with Jay. Right. He's counting on him to make, he's saying, I'm going to make sure that this guy can handle it by himself. So he goes in, sacrifices himself, we think, to get his gun back. He knows he's going to retire, so he knows he doesn't need the gun. He's doing it to provide Jay with that ultimate kind of test. You know, it's the same thing with the, you know, the baby in the car, even though that's played for comedy and lots of little things. You know, letting him go in and interrogate Linda Florentino himself the second time, you know, every five minutes, two minutes. So, okay. <laughs> you see all these little ways that he's training him that, to me, resonate a lot more once you get to the end of the movie and you recognize that he's actually training a replacement. Does this movie need someone of the star quality, star caliber, the acting caliber, whatever, of Linda Fiorentino in that role? So Linda Fiorentino is a person. <laughs> Stop right there. Um, <laughs> that I have a lot of trouble with. 
Um, I know I'm not going to get any purchase from you or from Adam on this. I know. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I'm not. Okay. We I... might be on the same page there. I think she needs yeah. to be in the right role because if you watch something like The Last Seduction, yes. she's amazing. And then you watch something like Dogma and you're like, you should have so... cast someone else. So I grew up with Linda Fiorentino from primarily from this and from Dogma. Okay. Um, and I've always had a weird Linda Fiorentino allergy. I just have. Like, it's one of those. I reckon. I mean, she's, you know, she's a capable actress, obviously. She's a screen presence. I get that. Um, but then I went, I think last week, I, I sat down. I'm like, you know what? Let me figure this out. And I watched for the first time. I watched um, The Last Seduction. And I watched Jade. Um, oh, I haven't seen Jade in a long time. Jade is a William Freakin joint that is is you can definitely tell that it was kind of coming out of that sexy nineties thriller thing. And it's not very good. I heard somebody um, recently refer to those on Twitter as fuck noirs. And I <laughs> really a, liked that descriptor. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. So Jade is a, is a, is a, is a, is a uh, classic fuck noir. Um, <laughs> the last seduction is really good. That movie is so wild. Like that movie is so interesting. And Bill Pullman is like on another planet in that movie. Pullman. Like, Pullman, like, like we stand a legend like he's amazing <laughs> like he, he's so great in that movie and um and i got linda fiorentino in the context of the last seduction yeah. i'm like okay she's playing a femme fatale i get that you can't play a femme fatale in every movie i, I just <laughs> i don't i don't necessarily know like I, I mean they make the joke about how like oh she's got a real queen of the undead thing going but i i i just i find her really distracting i'm just i'm unfortunately still i i, I like her in the last seduction but i just i don't quite understand Linda Fiorentino. Okay. Um, I don't know. You said you were of a similar. Yeah. I, I think she needs to be in the right role because I just remember yeah. dogma feeling yes. like she was really miscast. And, and part of the problem with dogma is that that movie exists only in exposition as well. Yes, exactly. But I remember Kevin Smith saying on the commentary that he, he had a lot of problems working with Linda Fiorentino and wished after the fact that he had cast Janine Garofalo in that part. And that's a totally different movie. That is a totally different movie and a much um, a better one. I still have, I have that thing with dogma where like I, I watched the, when I watch dogma, I watch the movie it's trying to be rather than the movie that it is. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'm just so in the tank for Kevin Smith, but you know, I totally agree. And, and apparently he and um, apparently Tommy Lee Jones and Linda Fiorentino did not get along, which is one of the reasons that she's not in the sequel. Um, Interesting. Which, you know, two wonderful, generous uh, <laughs> right. people. I can't imagine why they those It's this very surprising that they would uh, have friction. But since we're talking about it, I, I just, I really, I have this thing about Kay. So Kay, to me, I just, he strikes me so, so profoundly interesting in this, in this movie on this watch. Because I, I even as a kid, I recognized the, the, the thing about um, how he was there the first night, right? Oh, you brought that tall man some flowers, right? Like that right, whole thing right, where right. you realize that she, you know, he was bringing the, he was a young man bringing the flowers to his girlfriend. She never got the flowers. He got wrapped up in the MIB and that became his life. And that the, his arc in this movie is kind of about getting back to that place um, where he was before. And um, there's an interesting element uh, to the movie where it's, we can get back into this later, but this thing about like it's kind of like Looper, where like every MIB agent knows they will eventually be neuralized. Like, is that, I wonder if that's how it works for all of them, or if some of them voluntarily stay to work until they die. Because the two examples we see of the right. two um, older agents, they both voluntarily have their minds wiped. Anyway, we can get back into it later. But the idea of when he sells um, Men in Black to 
Jay, and it has a great scene on the bench, and it has the you know the wonderful line um, about people. People are you know a person is smart, people are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it, right? He talks about society. He talks about knowledge. He says, you know, everybody knew 1500 years ago that the world was this and that. And, you know, imagine what you'll know tomorrow, which is like brilliant. And Ed Solomon did a, a, a AMA on Reddit the other day. And apparently that was one of his, he said that was one of the lines he's like proudest of. Oh, yeah. um, Cause it's a great line. And I, I just, and, and Jones's delivery is like amazing. Cause you see that on the paper on paper, but he adds that pause and he adds that pathos to it. And what he does is he adds a weight where he says, hey, you know, everybody knew, everybody knew. It's like, imagine what you'll know tomorrow. And he says it in this way that's like, you can feel that he's been carrying all this weight. And if you notice, every time he talks about society, every time he talks about people, he neuralizes somebody who goes, damn, what a gullible breed. Like these people, they'll believe anything. Mm-hmm. Or when they, the, the, after the noisy cricket fight at the jewelry store, when he says, there's always a thing that's going to happen. There's always a catastrophe. And the only reason that all these little people can go about with their lives is they do not know about it. He says all these things that are like not disparaging of, of human humanity, but like or the thing about how uh, human language is an infectious disease or, you know, it's it's our, our thought is so low. It's like an infectious disease. He says all these things that are like sound very negative. But what you I think what, what you realize is that he's like coping with the anonymity and he's coping with this job because. It, one of the other things we can get into is that the men in black are like bureaucrats, like they're not like a military. They're not a government. They're these like weird bureaucrats, these 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 diplomats almost. They're in betweeners. Right, right. right. And and the depth of Kay's character is um, he's not this like grumpy <clears throat> aggro guy. He's 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 profoundly sad. You know what I mean? Like and he's almost like it's 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 too much. And and I think maybe just as I you know as a kid I appreciated oh he was in love with that girl and now they're back together. This time watching the movie as an adult, I was really thinking about all the things he says throughout the movie and how they reflect this quiet, you know, he says it's worth it if you're strong enough and he, as he's kind of walking away into the sunset. Um, it's really this like kind of quiet, not misery, but melancholy. Like he's an incredibly melancholy person for what he has to do and maybe a little bit disappointed that the world hangs by this small thread. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's a lot of that in that performance. Well, that's why I think like, you know, you, you, you cast Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive for expertise and you know you cast him in volcano because at that point he's just playing the tommy lee jones part it's almost a parody of that part in this one it's that craggy faced you know <laughs> hang dog thing is to me really important to the character like it's almost one of, it, i i know i don't want to say it's the role he was born to play but like it's it's very much dependent on that performance um and in the writing and i think it's really really effective yeah i think it's one of those things that just sounds good on paper where it's like Will Smith uh, has this energy and he's young and, and upcoming and Tommy Lee Jones and he has this energy and he's older and as you say, craggy. Uh, yeah. There's no better word. I believe that's if you look up craggy in the dictionary, it's Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting how much depth and nuance they manage to give the character especially considering so many of his line deliveries are sort of deadpan and just reading, you know, the little bit of IMDb trivia that I read where it talked about Tommy Lee Jones wanted to be more comic with the role. He wanted to be able to quote unquote be funny because here's Will Smith over here being funny. And it was Barry Sonnenfeld who said, no, 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 just play it straight, play it, play it down. 
Um, and the, I, those are great instincts because that's what makes their dynamic, their chemistry work so well. It's what makes the Tommy Lee Jones character so interesting. Um, he's the guy whose movie I want to watch less. So Will Smith, who's, who's good in the movie. I enjoy watching Will Smith. He's a movie star. He's doing his Will Smith thing. Um, but Tommy Lee Jones is in the movie that I want to be watching. Yeah, for sure. No, I, and I, like I said, I think Will Smith is great doing his thing, but, um, no, he, I just, I found, I don't know what it was. I just, this time I watched, I just found, I found Tommy Lee Jones to be so, so interesting, especially his role in, in that exposition, you know, right. like it just even outside the performance, just the character, like, you know, Jay picks all this stuff up. He's got like a day to do it. And the way he's just constantly throwing him little bits of information, like the whole bit about like green, please not green, please not green. And he has that joke, you know, do you know what kind of bug does this or that the way he, it's almost distracted, right? We always talk about like Michael Keaton and Batman. You always, one of the things you always remember you saying is like, he's like distracted Batman. It's almost kind of the way Tommy Lee Jones is. And that's the part of it that I really, I really stuck with this time. Um, that and Vincent D'Onofrio. We'll get to Vincent D'Onofrio in a second. The exposition is so part, part of what makes the exposition so good is that training day structure that you point out because James Cameron has this amazing quote about making the Terminator where he says, if you need to get out exposition, uh, put it in a car chase, a car chase. Right. And that's what men in black is doing because they're always doing something. They're always going somewhere. They're going to see somebody to get some piece of information. Um, mm -hmm. they're never just standing around the office or stop. Wait, you mean to tell me it, that yeah. move, you know, that dogma does every two seconds where it's like, <laughs> wait, let me make sure I'm understanding this audience. Um, they're always moving. They're always going somewhere, doing something. And the exposition is coming out as they do those things. And so it's a lot more kind of palatable. They, and they even comment on that a little bit in the middle of the movie where he gets the coffee and he's like, don't you guys sleep around here? And he's like, oh, they, got, they got us on a 36 hour day. You'll either get used to it or you'll go insane. Like uh, that to me is kind of the movie looking at itself in the mirror. A right. Bit. Right. Vincent um, D'Onofrio is, yeah, is yeah. an actor who again can be very hit or miss. I tend to like him. Um, but he takes big swings. He tries weird things. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And in Men in Black, boy, does it work. Um, they picked a perfect actor to do such a bizarre role. When you think about what's actually happening here, that it's a bug wearing an Edgar suit. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. How do you? How do you play? Like you're, you know, Patrick. You, 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 you've dabbled in acting. If, if, if a director said to you. Okay, so this role is a guy, it's a bug, he's wearing a person suit. Go. Right. Like, what do you do? <laughs> and you're decomposing throughout the movie. Yeah, the gradual decomposition. <laughs> Apparently, D'Onofrio wore, uh, like, knee pads or uh, knee braces. Like braces, yeah. So make sure that he couldn't bend his knees, which gives him that kind of Frankenstein-y walk. Right. <laughs> um, no, oh, he's... Read <laughs> <laughs> the world to me. In water. Um, In water. Sugar, give me... Yeah, oh. he's, he said it was John Huston and somebody yeah. else. I can't remember. I read that too. I don't remember who it was, but he's just like incredible. Like, no, I, I want to find it. It's so strange because he, yeah, and he, and he also he plays that seems like that morgue scene where he's with the with the David Cross scene where he's you know you know he's a dear friend of mine and I you know I'd really like to you know uh, I'd like to get the cat back and he's he's delivering the scene as if he's like 
huckster trying to get something over on somebody, but he's also doing it as a decomposing cockroach. Like it's <laughs> so fucking weird. It was George C. Scott and John Houston, oh, supposedly that's, that's that he. I hear the John Houston. I don't hear the George C. Scott as much. I think that George C. Scott is probably in the posture or like the consonants, like he's hitting the consonants yeah. in a certain way. But yeah, no, he's um, and his wife as well. I think um, I have to look at the actresses. Siobhan, Siobhan Fallon. Siobhan Fallon. When she says like Edgar, your skin's hanging off your bones. Like yeah. she's so. <laughs> like, I'll listen to anything I said. Ask me to write down everything I said. <laughs> Uh, yeah. but that's another bit i love we can get back to knock but i love i love the way that that jay always wants to add another more personal layer to the nerve the post neuralizing right thing. right right like, uh you know he ran off with old girlfriends like you kicked him out <laughs> get some nice dresses go to bloomingdale's but um yeah vincent d'onofrio you know he asked before about about fiorentino and i mean this movie I, I I just don't know how I don't know if it doesn't work without D'Onofrio because he's largely in his own plot but like it is so enhanced by his yeah. his performance yeah um, it's a shame that I think that I read that Rick Baker had a uh, prosthetic bug for the third act but they they rewrote the the third act so much that they um, they needed more action than the the puppet I don't know if it was a puppet or, or some kind of prosthetic. Um, then they could do with it. So they ended up having a CGI, the bug at the, at the last minute. Um, but it would have been interesting to see his, uh, his model because all the other model work in this is, I mean, really good. I love the, um, the Aquilian guy that the guy inside the head yeah. and all that. Yeah. That's super cool. Stuff, and stuff you know, cool. unfortunately that is the story of Rick Baker's career for the last 20 right. years is like, I designed this amazing thing and then they use CG instead. Um, and in this case, at least there's sort of a reason for it the the big bug cg at the end is probably my least favorite cg in the movie because i think despite it being 1997 most of it i think has held up very very well yeah um and even the edgar bug at the end i mean i think it still holds up it's not like it's distractingly bad it's not fucking blarp from lost in space right um which would come out the following year r.i.p blarp (laughs) uh but uh, it is the most obvious kind of CG in the movie. And yet I appreciated how kind of small scale the final showdown is, that it's basically just the two of them and a bug. Because, again, in a different version of this movie, there's so much... And, and I feel like that's the end of Men in Black 2. I can't remember the end of Men in yeah. Black 2, but it's like we have to pile on the colossal world-ending stakes. We have to increase the action i mean this feels relatively quiet compared to a typical hollywood blockbuster um the third act of a typical hollywood blockbuster i'm thinking of men in black international if i remember correctly there's like a there's a hurricane or a tornado there you go i mean that's exactly something exactly what i'm talking about um a big crystal is being compromised i don't really know what's going on but yeah no it's such a it's such a contained thing and yeah. there's all those weird little new york jokes in there and stuff like that and i love the aesthetic like that that weird like that really cool 60s space age aesthetic of the headquarters and all that and even of the danny elfman score there's a pulpiness to the score mm-hmm. um that i think is really interesting and really good it's got that like dr strangelove title uh work going uh, according to the IMDb trivia, it's the same font that Barry Sonnenfeld used for men and for uh, the Adams family. Okay, that makes sense. That's why we go yeah. to the IMDb trivia, everyone, See? for yes. little nuggets like that. Font trivia. Um, here's my question. Yeah. Uh, aside from, 
how do they get stuff off their butts? Um, <laughs> are there only 26 men in black agents? Or do you think there's, do they use like other alphabets? Do you think? Or that's a question like I, when I was like 15, I thought was really insightful. Like, hold on a second. <laughs> They're all named after letters. No, just kidding. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, I guess you could have like 52, but once you make a third round, that means somebody right. is going to be KKK and that's not going to work. That's not going to be good. You go from like, you know, the uh, what's the little button on the word on the, on the uh, word processor that's like starts with numbered lists and then it goes to letters and it goes <laughs> to dots and bullets. Um, we should uh, mention that this is features a performance by Carl Struken, who's the giant, yeah, uh, Twin Peaks, and uh, another and Sonic also Bell Lurch Hulk. in uh, the Adams Family movies. He's always it's always fun to see him. Yeah. Um, you mentioned I want to go back to the funny background events you mentioned a minute ago because one of the things I really love about this movie is. Um, we were talking about economy of storytelling and economy of exposition delivery and things like that. So much of the things that are happening are happening while something else is happening in the background. Um, there's that one nice long shot of the ship, uh, when it lands and destroys the truck, which I think is a great long take of you just, you're seeing a shot of the farmhouse with the truck in the foreground. You're listening to this husband abuse his wife. And then you see this slow little light coming down and down and down. And then eventually it comes. And just as he makes the joke about the only thing working being his truck, it crashes and explodes the truck. And that's a nice little payoff. And then there's the whole thing with the neuralized soldiers as, um, uh, as the eye exam, as they're walking down the hallway and Tommy Lee Jones, as you said, is walking and talking, giving exposition. You just see the light go off to show that they've neuralized all the guys um, the alien birth, uh, you know, while uh, Reggie and Kay are having a conversation in the foreground, you see Jay struggling with the baby in the background. Probably um, my least favorite scene in the movie. You don't like that one? It's fine. I appreciate that, again, they're giving exposition in the foreground while making jokes in the background. Um, but it just feels set PC in a way that I don't feel the rest of the movie totally feels. Uh, it feels like a trailer moment. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe they needed something, you know, you could see a producer being like, hey, 15 pages, we need something goofy here. Yeah, so, I think that's what that's what I... Same with the car at the end of the movie. Right. Those are the two sequences that I feel like maybe were studio notes. Yeah, you can you can tell a little bit. And that's, I mean, as long as it's here and there, it doesn't bother me as much. But, no, it's fine. Um, and then the, the bug at the end, get, you know, one of the cool things is I like when movies teach you how to watch them, where it's that thing where you, you've seen four or five funny things or important things happening in the background of the movie. And then when K and J get up after the bug explodes, you kind of see him crawling behind them a little bit. Yeah. The movie never pulls focus. on. I mean, it's a little more obvious because the, the, the score draws our attention to it. But, um, you know, just little little touches like that, little directorial and editing touches that I thought are um they just add to the character of the movie. They add to the tone of the movie and kind of the, the, the tightness of the script and just the professionalism of the delivery. I think it's really great. It's, it's um, just a, it's a movie where everybody is doing their job really, really well. Um, yeah. And we get fewer and fewer of those. I don't mean to be the guy who's always lamenting the state of movies because we still get so many good movies every year, but we rarely get them where, literally everybody is working kind of at the top of their game. No, for sure. Uh, and that's, I think what this is. So I want to talk just, uh, I, I really two two things. One is about the, the flashy thing. Cause we have to talk about the flashy thing a little bit more. Um, but the other one is the way the movie is kind of a, is, is a little bit of about immigration and a little bit about the relative experience of people from different places. Um, one of the things I, you know, find that's text it's on the surface. Cause 
um, Kay describes the Earth as the interstellar Casablanca, basically. You know, same thing with no Nazis, right? Everybody comes here when they don't have a planet. They're kind of a way station. And as I said before, that kind of makes the MIB diplomats because they're not military. They're not a government. They're not controlling. Like, they're licensing and they're kind of regulating. And they're, they're like the DMV, basically, more or less. Um, what I really like is the way that um, all the different alien species have a kind of interconnectivity, but we also get in the background some... Um, I guess, class or species warfare, you know, there's that constant thing about the bugs being higher evolutionarily than us. You know, Edgar says like, you know, you, you guys are basically bugs to me. Um, and, um, the immigration aspect, obviously the movie begins at the border and there's the literally the joke about, and you know, illegal aliens. And sometimes the right. movie maybe leans a little bit too much <laughs> on that. But, um, but there is something really interesting to me about that. Like I love this, even though you mentioned it wasn't your favorite set piece. Um, the whole thing with Reggie and like that aliens are people too. And they have that kind of immigrant experience and they get married and they have babies and they get harassed by cops. And, you know, and they look at earth the way that a lot of people, you know, maybe look at America, right. you know, this place where they come and kind of build their own thing. And, um, and there's just like that legacy of like the world's fair. And I just, all that. And as I said before, that sixties aesthetic, there is something very kind of mid century idealistic about the movie. Um, and, um, and that part of it always kind of stands out to me. I, I kind of and, and just the, the, the relativity of experience, the whole idea of the galaxy, you know, the galaxy is on Orion's belt. And then, um, at one point, Frank says to them about, uh, you know, humans always have to think something is big and hmm. that makes it. Important. And he says, no, there's a whole galaxy inside of the little pendant. And that doesn't mean it's not important. And um, that, to me, ties into the anonymity of being a men in black agent that ties into Kay's experience with giving up his whole life to support this thing. And. Um, a lot of that kind of flowed together really well for me. It's a very Douglas Adams. Like it's got a very Hitchhiker's Guide kind of thing to it where there's humor in the, there's kind of this existential black humor where it's very much like it's very fatalistic, but it's also very quirky and it's very, has a sense of humor about itself. Yeah. Um, which I, which I, I really, um, enjoy. And I love like the way, um, the supermarket tabloid thing, for example, like it's a great joke. I think that supermarket tabloids are the, it turns out that they are actually the best investigative That's the real news, right? That that's the actual real news. Yeah. Um, which is perfect for the tone. And it also implies like, you, you don't want to think too much about the world building element because the movie doesn't want you to. But like, when you think about the fact that surely some of these people on the street made it out of there without being neuralized <laughs> and some of those people made it out and some of those people are going to write news articles or post blogs or make Twitter posts in the modern day about these things and, and you see this is how conspiracy theories start you know and there's this beautiful thing where it again to go back to that 60s space age aesthetic like area 51 kind of thing where you know today obviously conspiracy theories are a huge problem because they became um reality right. um but there's this wonderful kind of positive attitude about them where it's this nice thing where it's like yeah sometimes news does kind of sneak out uh, sometimes reality, you know, it does kind of sneak out in this alien technology and the flying car and this and that. And there are little things that, you know, a newspaper, ta uh, a, a super, uh, excuse me, a supermarket tabloid would just find kind of appealing to somebody who's looking for just that excitement. Um, it does get folded into the overall tone of the movie um, in a way that's, you know, looking up at the stars and finding them quite beautiful and all that. And I think there's something really interesting about that. Um, the tone See, the thing about this movie was, is that the tone is informed by the story, by the characters, by the acting, and by, like, the humor and the action right, as well. Right, right. Aesthetic. It's one of those things that's so tonally together that you just 
you know, feel very comfortable in the world. And it just underplays so much. Um, the sense of humor is so sly and the performances are so not deadpan, but again, Tommy Lee Jones driving so much of the narrative um, and the way that his humor comes out and the way that he delivers his lines. It's nobody is waving their arms and saying, look at me, look at me, even though there's some flashy stuff happening in the movie, because it is this hundred million dollar Hollywood blockbuster with aliens and lots of special effects and big movie stars. Um, but nobody is calling attention to themselves, not the jokes not the the story, not the special effects. Everything is there to like serve this bigger purpose, and it really works well. So Linda Fiorentino in this movie. <laughs> to get back to her for a second, yeah. In a way where I'm on her side, there's a great joke in this movie. Jay is. Uh, very focused on people not being neuralized multiple times, right? Which is where the flashy thing joke comes from, right? You're going to give her brain cancer. You're right. going to give her this. You're right. going to give her that. And when he says to her, you're going to, you know, you're going to give her leukemia or something like that. And he says, never bothered her before, which is not a line I've caught many times before this. I think I may have caught that for the first time this on this watch. The fact that he says never bothered her before, I looked at the t subtitle to make sure, which implies that, as the one of the you know doctors in the city morgue of uh, Alien Immigration Central, she's probably been neuralized three or four hundred times. Yeah, and the fact that she is the one who is conspiracy minded, where she comes in to see uh, Edwards at the beginning and she says, "I believe you," where she's the one who has the thought, she's the one who obviously becomes an agent at the end. There is a nice symmetry to that that I didn't always really pick up on before. The fact that she's just like maybe being in that position just means that you're going to be so exposed so many times to all the weird shit going right, on right. that eventually, eventually it starts to leak. Like it's almost like a flaw. It's like minority report where it's like, no, eventually if a person sees enough of this stuff, the neuralization is not going to hold. Right. Like, I like, that's my little, my little head cannon. I like to think about it that way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I know. And that might be like, oh, obviously that's the movie, but like to me, I don't know. It's something new I picked up on. Uh, in terms of my viewing of it this time, because I know he says something there. He says, I think he, I've always thought he said like never bothered us before. So I didn't realize he had said never bothered her before. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I uh, just thought that was that stuck out to me this time. Yeah, I like it. Um, anything else about men in black that you want to bring up? Um, I have one question. Yes. It's not about butts. <laughs> I, and it is actually a legitimate question. Why and I was late in the show to be doing this, but it is in my notes. Why do they? Why does he neuralize Jay the first time? If if he's just going to give him the card, and tell him to come to see them in the morning, does he want to do it because he wants to see his skill in in the field and kind of see it without context, and then knowing his character, neuralize him and bring him in cold to the test. Or do you think that's an editing thing that just got – like, do you think that's a story purpose? I, I'm, I'm missing – Yeah, I weirdly have never thought about it. <laughs> the, way I, the way I just – because it's such a strange thing in a movie that is so tightly constructed. I guess I think about it as uh, that Kay wanted to see Jay's skills in the field and without any context. He wanted to tell him all these things, see how he would react to them, um, and then wipe his memory so he could go into the test with Reptorum clean. 
um, because he needs to not know what's going on and maybe see how he works with authority and things like that. Um, but I, I, I just, for some reason, it stood out to me as strange this time. Maybe that's not something that people think about, but I thought it was kind of strange. It is definitely strange, and it's probably my fault for never really considering it, but I guess it's a a testament to how well the movie works that I've seen this movie half a dozen times and never questioned it. Right. Um, plus it gives us that scene where he's doing, <laughs> where he's shooting all of the <laughs> cardboard aliens and shoots the little girl with the quantum physics books. And, and uh, oh, I like his yeah. whole explanation of. I appreciate it. If you get off of my back about it, <laughs> that part it's I could real. do without, cause that's where he goes full Will Smith. And I'm well, just like, you gotta, you gotta, it was the millennium. You gotta give uh, him some, is all right right. (laughs) well thanks for talking men in black with me it was super fun thank you i promise to watch butt boy up your butt 2020 (laughs) thank you guys very much for listening as always go to fthismovie.com for content every day go to twitter we're at f this movie you can like us on facebook you can follow us on instagram you can email us at f this movie podcast at gmail.com and you can uh listen to us on apple podcasts or spotify wherever you get your audio content if you haven't done so please rate and review the show it raises the profile and helps other people find us uh thanks again rob this was awesome all right, check it. Let me tell you this in closing. I know that we might seem imposing, but trust me, if we ever show in your section, believe me, it's for your own protection. Because we see things that you need not see, and we be places that you need not be. So go on with your life. Forget that Roswell crap. Show love to the black suit. It's the men in black. Wiki, wiki, wild. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.